Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul writes, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner person, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And you all say, Amen. Amen. You know, there's a bumper sticker that's always irritated me. Um, it, I don't know. I, I don't know why it irritates me. It, maybe you've seen it. It's, it's kind of an old one. Smile, God loves you. I don't know why that irritates me. It probably shouldn't. But it, it's something about it. I'm just like, oh. I don't know if it's just so trite or what it is. Uh, I'm not really a bumper sticker person anyway. They, they usually irritate me. But you know, that one in particular, it's like, smile, God loves you. You know, God's love is so amazing. And to try to just reduce it to, well, it can sort of perk up your day and give you a little reason to smile. No, no, no. God's love is immense. God's love is great. It's not a trivial little thing that can fit on a little piece of paper. God's love is so awesome and overwhelming. And my concern for myself is that I don't always grasp that, that my understanding of God's love is often about as thick as a bumper sticker that I haven't really plumbed the depths of Christ's love. I haven't turned my telescope up to the, to the heights of Christ's love or seen how far it really extends. And I'm, I'm sort of satisfied to have a superficial understanding of Christ's love for me. And so this morning we're studying Ephesians and here at the very apex of the letter, at the summit of the letter, at the end of chapter 3, it's sort of the, the climax, the high point. Paul is praying that we will understand how great God's love is for us, that we will have more than just sort of a bumper sticker affirmation that God, in fact, loves us, but we will really grasp it deep down in our souls, and that the love of Christ for us will become like a nuclear reactor inside of us, fueling a vibrant Christian life. And so he prays that we may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And so if you were here last Sunday, you remember, we decided that we're going to take a few Sundays and just meditate on the love of Christ, uh, to ponder the different dimensions of the love of Christ, to use these four dimensions, width, length, height, and depth, as sort of a, a vehicle for getting into how great Christ's love is for us. You remember last week we talked about the width of Christ's love. We saw that Christ's love is wider than our sins, that even though when we blow it, our sins are just spread out wide like a, a person crashing on the ski slope and all of their equipment goes spread out everywhere, you know, the yard sale. We, we have all done a yard sale with our sin, but God's love is wider than our sins. But today I want to look at those next two dimensions, how long is the love of Christ and then how 
high is the love of Christ? So let's start with the first one. How long is the love of Christ? How far distant does Christ's love extend? How far out did, did Jesus' arms stretch in order to grab wayward sinners? Or to put it another way, how far can a person, how long can a person run from God? How distant can they go and still be within the reach of Christ's love? It's an important question because we've all wandered at different times in our lives. Even those of us who are truly Christians know that at certain periods of our lives we have gone away from the Lord and we've disobeyed Him. And we all know what that's like to wander from Him. You know that old uh, hymn, uh, Prone to Wander, Lord I Feel It, Prone to Leave the God I Love. Like every Christian, if they're honest, should be able to sing that hymn with gusto. Because we've all done, in fact, whenever I get to that, I'm like, yep, they're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I feel just this, this bad alignment, and I just want to go into the ditch. And there's this constant battle to stay following the Lord. The Christian life is a constant battle. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. If you're a Christian, you are at war from now till you die. It's a constant battle to follow the Lord. And there's this tension and this temptation always to go far away. It's going far away. We have a name for that in Christian jargon. It's called backsliding. It's, it's going astray from Christ, going astray from the Lord. When I was thinking in the scriptures of someone who went astray from the Lord that we could kind of analyze, I, I thought of Jonah. Jonah is the classic fellow who went away from the Lord. The Lord said, go east, Jonah. Well, northeast, technically. And Jonah went west. You remember that story? I'll just read just a little first bit of it for you. You don't have to turn there. I'll read the first few verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish, the opposite direction toward the Mediterranean. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. God wanted Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now, you all know where Nineveh is, right? Think of modern-day Iraq and think Mosul, right? We're all experts on Iraqi geography now, aren't we? I, I'm starting a support group on Wednesday for people addicted to war coverage uh, that I'm going to be leading myself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hi, I'm Jeremy, and I'm a foxaholic. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it's bad. But it's amazing. I, I know all this stuff about Iraq now, and my, my knowledge of Middle Eastern geography has improved so much more. So think Mosul. Northern Iraq. That's about where Nineveh was. And uh, Jonah did not want to go to, to Nineveh. Now, why was it? Uh, well, the Ninevites were a cruel, oppressive people. The Ninevites were violent. They were, uh, they were the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were uh, an imperialistic people. It was their goal to gobble up all the nations around them, just as the Babylonians were after them. In fact, uh, their cruelty was renowned. One of the things that the Assyrians would do is when they captured POWs, they would skin them alive just to terrify the nations around them so that people would say, oh, you don't want to get captured by them. It's just surrender, because look what they do. I mean, there's a very cruel, very violent people. They would take captives away, and they put hooks in their noses and in their lips and you know, pull them along and make them walk all the way from wherever they were captured back to Nineveh. It's a very bloodthirsty people. And so God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach judgment against it. Jonah goes, mm -mm. Now, interestingly, it's, it's not necessarily because he was afraid to go. Because if you look later on in the book of Jonah, the thing that really bothered him was that 
this is his logic. Jonah thinks, okay, if I go to Nineveh and I preach God's going to judge this place, there is a small, a real but very small chance that they might actually repent. And if they repent, I know God is going to forgive them. And that's the last thing I want. So why would I want to go there and give them one more shot at repentance? Forget it! Well, look, if I'm the judgment preacher, then I'm going the opposite direction. They're not going to get a message. They're not going to get a chance to repent. I mean, he wanted them to, to burn. And so he says, I'm not going to give them even one shot at repenting. And he goes, in the total opposite direction. Go east, young man. And Jonah goes west. And, and you know, we, we can relate to Jonah. There have been times in our Christian lives, not when we've just strayed from the Lord, but willfully done what we know God wouldn't want us to do. And we know he wants us east, and we're going west. And the question is, how far can a person go and wander from the Lord and still be within his reach? You know, I've got to tell you something. There's nothing more miserable than to be a backslidden Christian. Oh, it's miserable. There is no greater suffering and, and pathetic existence for a Christian than to know the Lord and to know that you are not walking with the Lord. It is a misery. We've all been there. And you know you're not with the Lord. You know you haven't done right. But, but it just it weighs on you. And the further you walk and the further you get from the Lord, the more the Holy Spirit pecks on you. It, uh, Christians are saved from hell. This is true. But a Christian who is backslidden lives a sort of hell on earth. It's a hell on earth because, uh, like I said, first of all, our consciences are stirred up against us. The Holy Spirit does not let us rest. We try to push the Holy Spirit away, but he just keeps coming in and pestering us. And we try to get it out of our minds, and we lay in bed at night, and there in the quiet of our bed, comes back, and we know that we're far from the Lord. We're not where we should be. The Holy Spirit doesn't let us rest. He keeps pecking and pecking. Thankfully, he keeps pecking and pecking. Come back to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. It's like Jonah's ship as it went west. God sent a great storm. And so God sends a storm upon the Christian who is backslidden. And as that boat groaned and creaked under the forces of the waves, so our very consciences and our souls you know, groan and creak as we're fighting against God and losing all the time. But we keep, we keep holding out. It's a hell on earth to, to backslide and to turn away from the Lord. But it's also a hell on earth, not only because our consciences convict us, but also because Satan uses it as an opportunity to just rub our noses in it. This is, his, his, this is uh, Satan's strategy 101. You should know this if you're Christian. You should know how he fights so that you can defend yourselves. Uh, when little demons go to elementary school, this is the first thing they learn the first day of class. Tactic number one for tripping up Christians. It's basic in the playbook. First thing you do, it's a one-two punch. First thing you do is you tempt the Christian away from God. And then once the Christian bites on the hook and goes away from the Lord and sins, then you make them despair of ever returning. This is classic strategy that Satan uses. So Satan says, oh no, go, go west, don't go east, go west. So we go west, and then when we go west, he grabs our noses and just rubs it in it so that we never have hope of returning. He says, oh no, 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 you've gone too far this time. You've gone too far. Yeah, how many times are you going to ask the Lord to forgive you? Seriously. You've asked so many times. You can't ask him again. Your bank account's dry. You can't go back there. People know you back in that church. They know that you've went away. They know you've been gone for a year or two. What, are you going to go back now? Oh, they're going to look at you funny. No, you can't go back. You can't go back. There's no chance. You're damaged goods. 
Yeah, you may be going to heaven. Well, I don't know. We'll talk about that. But I'll tell you, you'll never experience the joy that you had in your Christian life. And he just weighs us down with despair and hopelessness in our sins. The classic one-two punch that Satan uses. And so backsliding is a hell on earth. It's a hell on earth because our consciences are, are tormented and because the tormentor torments us with lies and the things that aren't excuse me, things that aren't true. Because when we go far from the Lord, it's, it's a terrible experience. Like Jonah, we are in that ship in the storm. But the love of Christ is longer than our wanderings. The love of Christ goes further than our backslidings. No matter how far you go from the Lord, His arm can still reach further to bring you back. And if anyone at any point turns back to the Lord, he will receive them and restore them because his reach is further. There are no hopeless cases in God's book. As long as a person still has breath in their lungs, there is hope if they will come back to Christ because Christ's arms and Christ's love is long. That's what happened to Jonah. Jonah finally, uh, he woke up, storm at sea, and, and all the sailors are going, pray to your God, Jonah. There's a storm. And, and Jonah goes, oh, don't go. The reason there's a storm is because I'm running away from the Lord. This is judgment. Toss me into the ocean. It'll be fine. Everything will be fine. And they say, oh, we can't do that. And then the, the storm intensifies, so they toss him into the ocean. And Jonah was just at a point of total despair for his life. He says, just drown me. It doesn't matter anymore. And there, as he's sinking down into the depths, the famous, the fish comes and swallows Jonah. Now, in the context of Jonah, the fish swallowing Jonah was salvation. See, I think sometimes we think of it as judgment. It was the moment of salvation because Jonah was drowning. In fact, go back and read Jonah chapter 2. Uh, you'll, you'll see that he's praying to God, I was drowning down, but then you saved me. The fish was an act of love and mercy to a drowning Jonah. So there, even far away from the Lord, way out in the middle of the ocean, sinking down into the depths, God's love is still there to find him and swallow him up and bring him back to the land and spit him out and give him another chance. All right, Jonah, go east. Okay. <laughs> All right, he got me. God, is, is, his love is so long, he gives a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, 20th chance, 700th chance, if we repent and turn back to him. Because his mercy is so great, we can't exhaust it. But we do have to repent and turn back. Think about Palm Sunday. This is the first Sunday of Holy Week. And what is Palm Sunday? It's the day we celebrate, you know, Jesus riding on the donkey into Jerusalem and all the people on the sides of the avenue with palm branches and, and, and shirts and, and taking off their robes. Uh, we, we watched in awe and wonder this week as the citizens of Baghdad were, were liberated. And we saw just the, the jubilation, uh, the looting too, but that's not what I'm talking about. The, the jubilation and the excitement, you know, just the freedom. And it's that kind of... Um, Middle Eastern context. It's that culture where people really were, were just ebullient with, with their expressions of excitement. And so you can imagine these people just rejoicing. But, but what was it when Christ was coming into Jerusalem but the end of a long journey? Where he had come a long way for far-off sinners. Because that journey did not begin on the Mount of Olives. That journey actually began in eternity past. It began when God the Son, uh, I'm trying to think, God the Son, the, the second person of the Trinity, was in eternal fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, eternally rejoicing, eternally complete, but having mercy upon lost sinners. 
And so, uh, in conformity to the Father's will, God the Son stepped down from his glory and entered into our humanity, and he took on human flesh and became Jesus of Nazareth. And God the Son walked among us, and he lived among us, and he ate our food, and he, he walked in our roads, and he came right down among us. He came into Jerusalem among the people, and, and he came all the way to the cross so that he might come and find us. And he, he grabbed a, a sinners like this guy here, <laughs> and he said, he, he died for him on the cross, he said, come with me, I'm going to take you back. And he took him all the way back. And so now this is who you are if you're a Christian. You're on a journey back to be with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Thanks, Mark. Note to self, don't sit in the front. All right. <laughs> that's, the, uh, you know, the, that's what Christ did. His coming into Jerusalem was a long journey to grab sinners and bring them back to eternal life. Because Christ, is a, he's a journeyer. He goes on this long trek. His love is long. No matter how far away you are, his love can reach you. Do you know someone who's gone far away? Do you know someone maybe from this church that you love who's gone far away? I'll tell you, they're not beyond God's love yet. Keep praying for that person. Keep reaching out. Let Christ's love extend through you to reach that person. They are not a lost case. You have a child that's wandered away from the Lord. You raised him in the church. You taught him the truth. They know the truth. But they're far away. Are they beyond the love of Christ yet? No. Christ's love can still reach them. Are you be, have you wandered away? Maybe you're like, yeah, I'm the Jonah. I'm the guy who's way off in the distance. Christ's love can reach you still. You're not damaged goods. You're not a hopeless case. Because Christ's love is longer to any who will repent and return. Our God loves to hug and restore repenting backsliders. He loves it because it shows the glory of his grace and mercy. Christ's love is, is long, but it's also high. Christ's love is also high. It, it also extends upwards. It doesn't just go out horizontally. It also goes up vertically. As Paul prays, he asks that by God's grace we might be able to grasp how wide and long and high. How high is the love of Christ? So, how high is the love of Christ? What altitude does it reach? To what extent does it go upwards? How far up does it stretch? When I was thinking about the love of Christ in, in an Old Testament story to tie in here like we did with Jonah, you know, the one that came to mind was when the Israelites went into the Promised Land for the first time. Do you remember that story? God uh, brought, raised up Moses. Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea, took them into the desert, gave them the Ten Commandments, took them to the edge of the Promised Land, and now they're going to go in and invade the Promised Land that he had promised to give to the Israelites. And he says, all right, time to go in. But before they go in, what they decided to do was a recon mission. So they picked 12 special ops, one from each tribe. They picked the, the Delta Force, and they said, okay, your guy's mission is to go in and infiltrate the land of Canaan and bring back intel on enemy positions so that so you can, like I said, I, I need this support group. Uh, so <laughs> you need to come back and, and uh, tell us what's going on. So, the, so there's 12 spies, they go into the land and they check it out. Then they come back and they bring a report and actually have the, 
the report here. Uh, it's in your sermon notes from Numbers 13. Let's take that out. And they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the descendants of Anak there. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than us. And they spread a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We even saw the Nephilim there. Uh, the, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Or later on in Deuteronomy 128, Moses reminds them that they said, The people are stronger and taller than we are, and the cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Tall, big, up to the sky, high above us. We can't go in there. You know, we're shrimps compared to these people. They're huge. You know, they're gigantic. Uh, these tall people, these big walls. And so the, the Israelites trembled. They said, we can't do it. Well, ten out of them trembled. Two of them didn't tremble. Remember? Joshua and Caleb were the only two guys out of the twelve. They had the minority report. And they said, no, 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 no. We can do this, guys. Now, why did Joshua and Caleb think that they could take the promised land? Was it because they were just tougher? Was it because they just happened to be big and so they didn't feel so small? You know what? What is it about Joshua and Caleb? Answer, they trusted in the love of God. They trusted in the promises of God, and that's it. They said, hey, look, since the time of Abraham, 400-some years ago, God's been telling us that he's going to give us the promised land. And he told it to Isaac, he told it to Jacob, we've had this promise. Now we're at the promised land, so let's go take the promised land, because he told us that he's going to do it. So what are we afraid of? Don't you know that God loves us, that he's committed himself to us? So come on, let's go do it. He loves us. No enemy is taller than the love of our God. No wall, no obstacle is higher than the love of Christ. So let's go do it. It was their faith in the love of God, their faith in the promises of God, that gave them confidence to tackle the enemies and the obstacles that were before them. There is no obstacle raised up in this life against you that is taller than Christ's love. So what enemies do you face? What, what tall giants and big walls are sort of leaning, looming over us? Have you ever had a, a big financial enemy looming over you? And you wonder, oh, how are we going to pay these bills? I mean, we live in this economy that's, that's still eh, kind of seasick, and we don't know what's going to happen. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe there's you know rumors in the company that in the next six months it's going to start laying off a bunch of people. Uh, you know, are you worried about that? I'll tell you, finances, they'll keep you up at night worrying about jobs and income. But no matter how high those, those finances are, no matter how high those giants are, God's love for you is higher. Look what he says in his word. Check out uh, your sermon notes again. This is what Christ says. Just like he gave a promise to the Israelites, he's given promises to us. Look at the bottom of the front of the sermon notes. Matthew 6 
So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your Father, your heavenly Father, your loving Father, knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. My friends, this is not a principle, this is not a generalization, this is a promise from God's word that if you will put God first in your life, he'll take care of your needs. Maybe not your wants. <laughs> may not, you know, may not be a seven-bedroom mansion, but you know, he'll take care of your needs. He'll take care of your needs. You will not go hungry, you will not go thirsty, you will not go naked, and you will not go without a roof over your head if you will put Christ first in your life. It's a promise in his word. And you can bank on it. And I've seen it happen so many times. We could just tell stories. Probably you guys could just come up here and pour a big wine and just tell stories of how God's provided for you financially at different times in your lives. And we could spend the rest of the morning listening to incredible stories because God provides for the needs of his people. Or check out on the back. This, this one's so cool. Hebrews 13. I, I, can, I groove on this one. The writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, said, Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God's love for us is the foundation of financial security. All right? And in fact, this is what's really cool. Oh, this is so awesome. Look, see that quote, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Check this out. Where does that quote come from? Deuteronomy 31.6, which is the place where Moses is given the final pep talk to the Israelites before they go into the land of Canaan and whip their enemies. Isn't that a nutty? Right before he's going into the promised land, he says, look, be strong and courageous. God will never leave and forsake you. Now go get those Canaanites. And, and here, the, the writer of Hebrews has taken that verse and applied it to the enemy of financial concern. So I'm not just spiritualizing this text. I mean, this is really how the author, how the Bible uses the text. Isn't that awesome? That enemy of finances, it, it may seem tall, it may seem looming. God will meet your needs. I'm not preaching health and wealth gospel here. I'm not saying that if you're a Christian, you believe in Jesus, you're going to be rich and have no disease. I'm not saying that. I'm saying he'll take care of your financial needs and provide for you if you seek him first. But what about other giants? Maybe there's a bigger giant that you know of. The giant of disease the giant of, of our mortality, the, the wall of our mortality, sickness and illness. You know, Mrs. Smith, um, we're, we're really concerned about, about that lump, and, and I think we need to do a biopsy. Oh, okay, okay. And you wait and wait and wait, and doctor calls back a week later. Mrs. Smith, we got the results back. Oh, really, what, what did the results show? I think you should come in. I'd rather not talk about this on the phone. Oh. So you go into the office and you sit down and you can hear that giant somewhere snorting in the background and, and, and the, the doctor says, yeah, it's cancer and it's, we need to treat this aggressively because of, of where it's at right now. And it's as if at that moment the big giant steps up and rises up to full height with armor and spikes and helmet and shield and a huge jagged sword and rises up to take your life. And at that moment you have to know that God's love for you is higher than cancer, that God's love for you is higher than heart problems, that God's love for you is higher than any physical ailment that you may be experiencing. Let's look again at his word. Again, I'm not just sort of pulling things out of the air. Look at his word. Look on the back of the sermon notes. Psalm 139. 
The psalmist says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. He's talking about the womb, his mother's womb. It's sort of a poetic way of talking about the womb. My, my frame was not made, hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. Here we go. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before you were born, every day of your life was laid out by God. So I'm going to tell you something. You cannot die one day sooner than what God has determined. Nothing can happen to your body and to your life outside of the love, hands of your loving Heavenly Father. And even at the moment of our death, we know that it is God's time for us, that He loves us, and that after we die, He's taking us into glory. So don't be afraid. Cancer cannot take your life. Only God can determine when you live and when you die. And it's in His hands, and He loves you. He loves you. And it's all for His eternal purposes. So let's not be afraid of disease. Let's not be afraid of SARS. SARS cannot infect you unless God allows it. And if He allows it, He has a good plan. You can trust Him. Because he loves you. He loves you. And he has an eternal purpose for you that even extends beyond the trials of this life. Or one final enemy. What about the enemy of enemies? <laughs> what about people? That's what the Israelites were facing, right? Maybe you've faced people as enemies, literal enemies. Maybe you've faced uh, a family fallout or a belligerent boss or a, uh, a backstabbing buddy. I worked hard on all that alliteration, by the way. Um, you know, what if you have some person you know who's really against you? And in fact, they're behind your back slandering you, saying things against you, spreading a bad word about you. Maybe you know somebody who's taking you to court, trying to sue the pants off you, trying to hurt you legally. Maybe there's someone who's actually physically trying to hurt you, and you have to get a restraining order against them. Hostile people. There are enemies in this world. There are bad people in this world who want to hurt us at times. But even then, God is bigger than those enemies. Look what he says in his word, Psalm 27. One of my favorite psalms since I was a kid. The Lord is my light and my salvation. <laughs> Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. <laughs> of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advanced against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attacked me, they're going to stumble and fall. Or Psalm 56. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can mortal man do to me? Trust in God in the face of human enemies. Trust that he is the one who can protect you and sustain you. God is higher than any obstacle, any enemy, any villain that you're facing in your life. His love is higher. And if he allows those things to come into our lives... He's in control and he has good purposes for them, even though we can't always see what those purposes are immediately. God is good and he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And his love is long and his love is high. Well, let's close the service this way. I want you to do two things. First of all, I want you to think in your mind of a person who has gone long from the Lord. Think of someone who's strayed from the Lord. Maybe it's someone you know. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's you. Does everyone have someone in their mind who they know who's strayed far from the Lord they're concerned about? And then second, I want you to think of one tall enemy that you're facing. 
Maybe it's a person, maybe an illness, maybe finances, maybe it's something else, something that's keeping you up at night, you've got your stomach turning. So you're getting someone who's long from the Lord and, and a big enemy you're facing. You have those in your mind? Okay, let's pray. Now what I'd like you to do is just pray for that wayward person. Pray that they will come back to the Lord and that Christ will bring them home. Now I'd like you to lay before the Lord the name of that giant and ask for the victory. Oh God, you're the good shepherd who loves even the one sheep who's gone astray. And so Lord, as you've heard all the names of these people that we're concerned about, I pray that you would hear our prayers and go out and find them because your love is long. And Lord, you've also heard the names of many giants raised up, many Goliaths who would stand and oppose the people of God. God, I pray that one by one you would bring these Goliaths down, that you would defeat the enemies that oppose us in this life so that we might be obedient and faithful to you. Now, Lord, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. Just encourage your people. And God, I pray along with Paul, that you would help us to grasp how much you love us. Take us beyond a bumper sticker affirmation of your love and let it be deep and experiential in our lives. And we ask this in the name of Jesus who loves us. Amen.